Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, sorry. This morning we are diving back into our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be beginning a a two-part look at a study I've titled Paul's Example of Patient Endurance. This is something we're going to be covering throughout Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. And in part 1 today, we're going to study verses 1 through 16, or at least that's the goal. We'll see if we get through all of that today. If we don't, it's okay. We're already planning on picking up the other part next week. But I I do want to backtrack just a little bit since it's been a couple weeks. And it was a blessing having Pastor Tim Brown here last week, sharing the word, really blessed by him. Um, But I I had planned to get into Acts chapter 24 actually two weeks ago. And and as I told you guys then, something that our, our, our friend, our brother, Josh Dean had shared with the guys of the Men's Fellowship just a few days earlier before that had, had, had really stuck with me regarding what Paul prayed in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, about believers being strengthened with all might uh, for all patience and, 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 and long-suffering with joy. And, and that thought just stuck with me of how we, we really do need the Lord's power to have that sort of patient endurance in our lives. So as I prepared for our study in Acts 24 two weeks ago, two weeks ago I, I started looking at this account, this chapter through the lens that Paul had that patient endurance. As he went through everything he was going through in Caesarea in his time as a prisoner there under Felix, the governor. But that reminded me of something then that James wrote in his letter, things that Paul exemplified in his life and ministry that I felt would be a great source of equipping and encouragement for us before we got into this chapter. And so last uh, two weeks ago, actually, we learned from the, the farmer and the prophets in Job in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. But this kind of brings us to our study today. And without reading all of Acts chapter 24 up front, we, we need to see this account in light of the context of the chapter as a whole. The, the corruption of the Roman governor Felix, the, the constant seemingly fruitless conversations Paul is going to have with Felix, and the amount of time Paul is going to spend in Caesarea, two full years, with, with no confidence from the Lord of when exactly the Lord was going to get Paul to Rome where he would bear witness to Jesus, only the confidence that Jesus said it would happen. I mean, think about these things even throughout the Bible where, you know, maybe God showed up, he spoke something to somebody, he put some anointing on some person's life, and then there's this period of time, sometimes many years before there's any fulfillment of the thing that the Lord actually said. You know, David, it was something like, I think, 17 years from the time he was anointed by Samuel. That day that Samuel showed up and each of David's brothers comes in. He's like, it's got to be this guy. He's great. He's tall. He looks great. Nope, that's not him, the Lord says, and goes through the six brothers. And is there anyone else? We didn't even think to call David. 
like, oh yeah, there's one other one, he anoints David, but there's, again, this period of about 17 years before David was actually crowned the king. So we think about Jesus showing up to, to Paul and standing with him in the night and saying, hey, Paul, look, just as you've borne witness to me in Jerusalem, you're going to bear witness to me in Rome. Well, when? Cool, you said it's going to happen, but I mean, is that like 30 years out? Is it three years out? Is it three weeks out? Is it three days out? Jesus didn't give him that sort of confidence. He just made a promise that was expected to be trusted, rested in. And oftentimes the Lord will do those same sorts of things with us. And in the in-between time, you know what is needed on our part? Patience. Endurance. To keep going, to keep maybe bearing under the weight of whatever it is that we're going through. And, and with those things in mind, clearly, for me, as I read through really all of Paul's ministry, but especially here in Acts chapter 24, clearly Paul was in need of patient endurance in his life and in his circumstances there in Caesarea. And, and again, so do we with the things we go through in this life. And, and I reference this passage, but I actually just want to show it to us. I want us to read it here before we get into, our, into chapter 24. But Paul prayed this. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he wrote, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bring, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, notice what it says in verse 11. Notice what he prays. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, so you could do great things for the Lord. He doesn't say that, does he? Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, so you can have a really easy life. Doesn't pray that. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, for. What's it for? What's all the power and the might for? For all patience and long-suffering with joy. You know, the ESV translates this, the English Standard Version translates verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The, the Lord wants to strengthen us with might according to his glorious power. And, and one of the reasons he wants to do that is so that we can have endurance and patience with joy. You know, patient endurance is, is definitely needed when the Lord allows us to remain in something that we would much rather not have to spend any amount of time going through. Lord, I don't want to go through this illness. Lord, I don't want to deal with this situation in my job. Lord, I don't want to have to keep going through this financial difficulty. Lord, I don't want to have to deal with this re relational component that is just always there in the periphery of my life. That just It's difficult. Lord, I don't want to have to remain in those things. And yet, as much as we might want to escape at time, the Lord has power for us 
in those moments to keep going, to patiently endure, and to do it, notice, with joy. And that's important because we can patiently endure and be joyless. I'm just enduring, but I'm hating life. I'm just enduring, but I hate people. I'm enduring, but I'm just, I just wish things would be over already. But that joy is evidence of a, of a deeper inner work that, that God does along with the patient endurance he's giving us the power to walk in. Paul needed patient endurance for these multiple meetings with the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council of the Jews, where they're going to continue to falsely accuse him and lie about him, not just here in this situation, but they're going to falsely accuse and lie about Paul again in chapter 25 when the next Roman governor takes over. Paul needed patient endurance for the different opportunities with high-ranking Roman officials who he had the opportunity to preach the gospel to, but who didn't set him free from imprisonment, although they knew that he was innocent. And Paul needed patient endurance to handle his imprisonment well, to not blow his witness for Jesus, to not lose sight of the Lord in the midst of his imprisonment, to take advantage of the different opportunities to share Jesus with others, even if he was rejected, and to not grow bitter towards the Lord or towards people. And I pray in our study today and next week as we you know, make our way through chapter 24 that we do learn from Paul's example, that we do learn in the midst of these things that God has power for us to not just patiently endure, but have joy in the midst of our circumstances. And so with that in mind, let's look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 24. Luke recording here, he says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So, you know, Luke kind of just gives us the situation that Paul's facing. He's been kept bound in Herod's praetorium in Caesarea, Caesarea being the capital of Judea at that time in the Roman Empire. He's been kept there for five days since he arrived by military escort. This was after the assassination plot of those 40-plus Jewish uh, individuals who had gotten the chief priests and elders in on their plan. The plan's overheard by Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew tells Paul. Paul tells a centurion. The, cent or the, the nephew tells a centurion. The centurion tells the commander. And so because of that, this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, he gets Paul safely out of Jerusalem by night. 470 military soldiers through the night. Five days since Felix received the letter about Paul where the, the commander stated that Paul had done nothing deserving of death or chains. Five days since Paul was told he'd be heard once his accusers came to Caesarea. But we need to know up front that Felix did not care about Paul. He didn't care 
about justice, about doing what was right, and didn't really care about what Paul even had to say about Jesus, which is going to be clear as we make our way through this chapter and, and mostly in our study next week. But it's also important to know some more about who this governor Felix is. Felix's time as governor spanned about six total years, and he's actually only one of three Roman governors that we find listed for us in the New Testament, the other two being Pontius Pilate, who we are probably more familiar with, and then Portius Festus, who drove race cars. No, Portia Festus. Do I need to bring the spoon out to make some sort of point? No, okay. My prop. <laughs> I told you I was going to bring it out at some point. Anyways, Portius Festus is actually going to be the person who takes over after Felix. But Bible commentator William McDonald said this about Felix. He said, the, the Roman governor Felix had enjoyed a meteoric rise from slavery to a position of political prominence in the Roman Empire. As to his personal life, he was grossly immoral. At the time of his appointment to be governor of the province of Judea, he was husband of three royal ladies. While in office, he fell in love with Drusilla, who was married to Azesus, king of Emesa. According to Josephus, a marriage was arranged through Simon, sorcerer from Cyprus. He says he was a cruel despot, as is evidenced by the fact that he arranged the assassination of a high priest named Jonathan who criticized him for his misrule. It was this Felix before whom Paul had to appear. So this just kind of helps us understand some of the dynamics surrounding this whole situation in Acts chapter 24. And with those things in mind, five days after Paul was brought to Caesarea to Felix, now Ananias, the high priest, along with some of the elders, so at least part of the Sanhedrin is present now. They, they came to Caesarea. They bring this orator, and this word orator actually in the Greek was a reference to an attorney who was authorized to practice law but was really expected to have significant rhetorical abilities. He was a really good speaker. And this man named Tertullus is who they brought with them. And now we're going to see Tertullus's accusations in verses 2 through 9. But let's start by reading verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, we continue on. And, and when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusations saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a, a few words from us. Tertullus begins with flattery, right? He talks up Felix as though he's someone who brought the Jews great peace and prosperity through his leadership, made it seem like you know, the whole nation of the Jews, they just gladly accepted his authority everywhere, in every place. We just, we love that you're the one leading us. We accept it. We accept you. And, and saying how thankful they were for him and his leadership. And none of this was really true. 
but it, but it sounded nice. And it would have really fed into and, and pumped up Felix's ego to hear these things right before they began making their accusations about Paul. And, th- and this was why Tertullus began his speech this way, to get Felix to lean in the direction of the religious leaders so that he would take their side against Paul, even though Paul was innocent. And so with the pleasantry sort of gone now, he brings these false accusations in verses 5 through 9. And so let's continue on. Verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by, And with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And verse 9, and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Right off the bat, the first thing after Tertullus gets done, you know, just blowing smoke, he says that Paul is a plague. The man is a plague. You know, this was an offensive thing to say. You know, how many of you would like to be compared to the black plague or the Spanish flu or the polio epidemic or COVID-19? You're just like that. That's you. That's the effect that you have. That's kind of, that's your vibe. You'd be like, dude, that's jacked up. Don't call me that. Don't you put that curse on my head, Ricky Bobby? Basically, Tertullus is saying, look, this guy's a disease. He's a cancer. He's responsible for corruption and destruction. His existence is harmful to others. You need to watch out. Yeah, and this would have been even more offensive when we consider that Paul's life after coming to faith in Jesus and his years of ministry since that point was was full of just concern that, that others would be saved. It only ever seeking to be a blessing and encouragement and help to other people. Paul was the furthest thing from plague. And I'm just thinking about this, you know, p- patient endurance is needed when someone is intentionally or even unintentionally offending you. To not react in the flesh out of hurt or frustration or, or anger. Paul doesn't lash out here with some sort of outburst. And even when he finally gets to make his defense, he doesn't become offensive in return. Patient endurance doesn't mean, you know, Paul just took it. He didn't speak up for himself. He didn't provide a defense. He just, you know, when it's his turn to talk, he just goes... I guess they're right about me. You know, that's not patient endurance. Paul still gave a defense. Paul still spoke the truth. But gosh, how we need the power of God when someone's trying to put us in a bad light. When we've heard that someone has spoken ill of us. Maybe someone has gossiped about us or 
you know, said something hurtful and offended us in some sort of way, whether they meant it or not. You know, it's that interesting, you know, you know, when someone begins a sentence or something by saying, you know, not, not, to, not to offend you or, you know, it's like, well, so you're going to, you're like, you know it's going to possibly be offensive, but you want to preface it in some way. You hope it's not going to offend me, <laughs> um, you know, but we need that patient endurance to be able to have the power of the Lord present to, to not let our flesh become the thing that directs us in how we're going to handle it. Don't we? Or, or is it just easy for us? When somebody does something like that, no big deal. It's just easy. Like, no, we need the power of God. Lord, I need your power right now. I need you just, just pouring out upon me everything that I need. I need you upholding me to, to not lose it and just go off on somebody. And God has power for us in those sorts of situations, in those sorts of dynamics in our lives, because we experience those sorts of things. Maybe not to the same degree as the Apostle Paul here, but things will happen. And God wants to meet us in those times and, and help us to patiently endure. But it didn't end there. Tertullus went on to bring some specific accusations. He says, first, that Paul was a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. That he was, a, secondly, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And then third, that he even tried to profane the temple. Now, Paul's going to address these accusations in his defense, but clearly the religious leaders through the means of their lawyer, is, is trying to paint Paul in the worst possible light. How is he a plague? Well, they accused Paul of creating dissensions among the Jewish people everywhere that he goes. In other words, Paul just stirs up strife. He causes problems. He's responsible for disturbing the Pax Romana, the 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 peace of the Roman Empire. And this would have been a big deal for them to make this accusation because for someone to threaten to disturb the peace, the Roman peace, that would have been something that would have been dealt with swiftly and severely by the Romans. And, and not only that, but they accused him of being a ringleader of a sect. If anyone ever call somebody a ringleader, it never sounds right, right? There's always some negative connotation. He's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. The reason he said Nazarenes is because the Nazarenes were a despised sort of people even within the Jewish nation. This guy's a ringleader of like the lowest lowlifes. Like this guy's just, he's heading it up. He's, you know, he's a cult leader. <laughs> and this sect would have, was their reference to a non-approved, illegal religion in the eyes of Rome. There were legal religions within the eyes of Rome. Judaism was one of those approved legal religions. That he's leading up, he's heading up this illegal cult. He's leading people astray. And they accused him of even trying to profane the temple in Jerusalem, which 
as I noted before, when we were going through that spot of, in the book of Acts, we know Rome saw as a fatal mistake for someone to make. They had given the Jews authority to even put a Roman citizen to death if they had profaned the Jews' temple there in Jerusalem. You know, we know that none of this was true, but if they could get Felix to believe that Paul was disturbing the peace of the Roman Empire, that he was a ringleader of an illegal religious cult, that he did something that even a Roman citizen would be put to death for, those seeds of deceit could help cloud anything true that Paul would go on to say in his defense. But not only did they paint Paul in a bad light, they painted the Roman commander who sent a letter to Felix saying that Paul was innocent in a bad light too. In verse 6, Tertullus followed up his accusations by saying that they seized Paul after he profaned the temple and that they wanted to judge him according to their law, though the only thing the crowd tried to do after seizing Paul was beat him and try to kill him without finding out the facts first. But in verse 7, he went on to say that the Roman commander, Lysias, didn't allow them to judge Paul according to their law, but came and with great violence took Paul out of their hands and commanded them to come to Felix. So they're painting themselves out to be the real victims in this whole situation. Isn't that like the most frustrating thing ever? When you know someone didn't do something wrong, or maybe you yourself, you didn't do something wrong, and someone else starts to play the victim, they try to make other people out to be the victimizer in the situation. It's like one of the most infuriating things that you might experience is, is someone trying to, to pull the victim card when they're the ones perpetrating whatever the situation is. And I, I just, I can't even imagine being Paul at this moment. Can you imagine sitting there and you're hearing all these false accusations just being thrown out about you? And these guys are making themselves, we were, we want, all we wanted to do is just judge him. And this Roman commander, he came and he violent and he hurt us and he took him away. We couldn't judge him like we, we were supposed to be allowed to do by law. Like your blood pressure would be dangerously high at the moment as you're listening to all that. Like just trying to keep your composure. But Paul patiently and quietly waited for his turn, and again, I just see in these things how the Lord was empowering Paul with all might to patiently endure as he was being lied about and made to look like an evildoer who was a threat to the Roman Empire, a threat to other people. I see the Lord's power in Paul not losing his cool, not letting his flesh get the better of him but clearly drawing on the Lord's strength and grace and peace as he sat through all that. And obviously, even as we consider Paul's example here, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see the ultimate example of patient endurance and how Jesus conducted himself in the midst of multiple times throughout his three years of ministry where religious leaders would 
say the wackiest things about him. He's doing, he's healing people by the power of Satan. I mean, how jacked up can you be to say that about God and human flesh? He's working by the power of Satan. I mean, I know he just healed that person, but it's Satan, clearly. You're calling him a, a Samaritan, saying that he's, you know, from a unwed mother, like, you know, all these sorts of things that they would say about Jesus, the way that they lied about him before Pilate, they were paying people to make false accusations against him, and he opened not his mouth and speak up for himself because he knew what he came to do, just go to the cross. Jesus going before us means so much. You know, the things that we think that Jesus often calls us to in this life, he doesn't call us to things that he never did himself. He didn't tell the disciples, take up your cross and follow me, and then he just, he's like, now go. I'm actually sending you to the cross. I'm going to go back to heaven. (laughs) No, he went to the cross first. He suffered. And we see Paul here operating in the Lord's power. But, but now that we've seen the false accusations, we're going to see Paul's defense in verses 10 through 21. We're going to only get part, through part of it today, but let's first read verses 10 through 13 where Paul just kind of states the facts. Verse 10, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Notice Paul doesn't try Tertullus' tactic. He doesn't try to butter up Felix with flattery. No, he just takes note of the fact that Felix wasn't new to judging the nation. Hey, I'm thankful that you're not new. It's kind of what we get here in the beginning as Paul starts to think, I'm glad that you're not new to this whole thing. You've been doing this for a while. I'm thankful for that. Thankful that I get to have this opportunity to speak for myself. Like, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I feel good about this whole thing of being able to answer for myself now. It's basically the kind of the, the gist of what's happening here as Paul begins his defense. Now, when Paul talks about it being no more than 12 days since he went up to Jerusalem to worship, he, he's wanting Felix really to know two things. First, that these religious leaders had plenty of time to gather up actual eyewitnesses who could testify against him, but they didn't. It's been 12 days. Like, you've got nobody here who even saw any of the things that you're accusing me of that I, that I supposedly did. But secondly, he's wanting Felix to know that one of the reasons he was in Jerusalem at all was actually just to worship his God. And when the riot happened and the crowd came and grabbed Paul, he wasn't disputing anyone. He wasn't arguing with anyone. He wasn't inciting the crowd to riot. No, 
Again, he was just there worshiping at the temple when they grabbed him. And Paul notes the religious leaders couldn't prove any of the things they were accusing him of. And those were just sort of the simple facts of the situation, although Paul is going to elaborate some more in the following verses in his defense. And so let's continue on and read verses 14 through 16, where Paul now makes a confession. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul's like, look, I I didn't do any of those things, and they can't prove that I did any of those things they're falsely, falsely, falsely accusing me of, but I do want to confess some things. I want to clear some things up. And in his confession, he clears up what Tertullus said about him being a part of an illegal, non-approved religious sect in the eyes of Rome. In verse 14, Paul says that according to the way, and again, This term, the way, is what the early church was called. It was a term that referred to Christianity and the Christian message, which was centered upon Jesus, the way, truth, and life. That that according to the way, which they call a sect, but wasn't an illegal religion, so Paul worshipped the God of his fathers and believed all things that are written in the law of God. And the prophets, and added to that in verse 15, Paul says, He had hope in God, which the religious leaders also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. The way Christianity and the Christian message about Jesus was not illegal or some weird cult. And that was clear in how Paul worshipped the same God his fathers did. Meaning, he worshipped the same God the Jewish patriarchs of old had worshipped. Paul's worship was, was rooted in the ancient Judaistic faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Paul's going, I'm not worshiping or leading other people in in having some other God that you don't know about. I'm worshiping the same God that these religious leaders profess to worship. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. Let's just make sure that we're clear on this. He believed, Paul said, all the things written in the law and in the prophets. So he believed all the things. He he believed and lived his life by the same ancient biblical text that the religious leaders did. These things that have been handed down for centuries upon centuries 
It was those same scriptures that Paul built his life upon. It was the cornerstone of of everything about Paul's doctrine. His belief system was rooted in that same ancient faith that the Pharisees said that they believed in. And Paul said that he had the same hope in God of a future resurrection as the religious leaders accepted. Now we know that not all the religious leaders actually accepted this because the high priest himself was a Sadducee at the time. And as a Sadducee, he didn't believe in angels or a spirit or a resurrection, right? We already learned that about the Sadducees. They're sad, you see, right? So that they're sad. I mean, you're going to be sad. If you don't believe in a resurrection, what do you have to be happy about? When it's, it's just all over, just all goes black, and there's nothing. No. There's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Some to a, a, a judgment of, hey, you know what? Gosh, you've got eternal life in heaven to look forward to. And some, it's going to be a judgment of condemnation to be con- condemned to hell for all eternity. There's going to be a resurrection. Jesus' resurrection makes that reality certain. Because he rose, we also shall be raised. Paul wrote about this in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He had that hope. Not, not how we kind of use the word hope in our day. Like, I hope. We use the word hope and it's like wishful thinking. I hope. I don't know. I'm hoping it works out. The biblical definition of hope is not how we use hope oftentimes. The biblical definition of hope is a confident expectation of future fulfillment. When they used the word hope, it was like, I know that this is going to happen. I have certainty. I have confidence that what God has said he's going to do. I've got this hope. Not like, I hope it works out. Like, I have hope. It is going to work out. I have hope. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees within the Sanhedrin would have accepted that because they believed in what the law and the prophets said. Paul's going, look, I have the same hope that these guys are supposed to have. I just believe in the scriptures. I have hope in the scriptures. I have hope in what God has said. Just like these religious leaders who are supposed to be representing God to all of us that they're supposed to have. Paul's saying all that so that we would see that his hope and his belief system and his worship was all rooted in the historic Jewish faith and again was not some weird illegal non-approved religious cults. But isn't this good for us to be reminded of even today? That as there's a multitude of religions, of ideals, of philosophies all throughout our world, that we haven't just bought into some sort of new thing. People will oftentimes try to paint Christianity as sort of this 
newer sort of thing that just kind of sprang up. But there's some older things. There's some more ancient things. And, and the more ancient, it seems like it has more credibility in some people's eyes. But, but our faith is connected to actually the things that God said in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, while they're still in the garden, right after Adam and Eve sinned, and, and God is talking about the curse that's now going to happen because of sin, he talked about the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head, but that the serpent would bruise the seed's heel. Then, at the very beginning, our faith is connected to the things that God promised way back in the very beginning of, of our time, of created time, of this temporal universe. Way back then, our faith is connected to this seed that God talked about who became the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who bruised the serpent's head upon the cross. He won the victory upon the cross over sin and Satan. That moment that the serpent thought was his moment of victory was actually his moment of defeat. You and I have the most ancient, most historic, most deeply rooted, most reliable and reasonable faith in all of humanity. And we can stand upon that today. We can have a hope today. Again, not like, I hope. Like, we can be those people who have that confident expectation of future fulfillment because our God has always been a promise keeper. He didn't just make promises, then he's like, well, I made the promise. Isn't that good enough? <laughs> I know it didn't work out, but I mean, I promised you. No, each promise he's fulfilled, or he will fulfill still. There are still things that we're waiting to see the fulfillment of. But we know with this track record, he's going to make good on the things that he said. We have this ancient, historic faith, the same faith that Paul spoke about you and I share today. Stand in that. Be confident about that. Let that draw you to an even deeper place of worship and appreciation of our God. I like what Bible commentator Warren Wearsby said about the confession that Paul made here. He wrote, the fact that Paul was a Christian did not mean that he worshipped a different God from the God of his fathers. It only meant he worshipped the God of his fathers in a new and living way. For the only acceptable way to worship the Father is through Jesus Christ. Find that in John chapter 5, verse 23. His faith was still founded on the Old Testament scriptures and they bore witness to Jesus Christ. But he went on to say this, Paul and the early Christians did not see themselves as former Jews, but as fulfilled Jews. The Old Testament was a new book to them because they had found their Messiah. They knew that they no longer needed the rituals of the Jewish law in order to please God, but they saw in these ceremonies and ordinances a revelation of the Savior. I love that insight. Again, just helpful, faith-building for us too as we consider the roots of our faith.
who we worship, who we believe in, who we are hoping in. But, but Paul, as we look at our text here, followed that up in verse 16 by, by making a confession in light of that hope that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, that he always strived to have a conscience toward, uh, I'm sorry, to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul's hope, his confidence of a future resurrection was part of what drove him to want to live a life without offense before God and men. Why? Because Paul didn't want his conduct or his character to be what offended people and kept them out of heaven. If people were going to be offended, Paul wanted the only reason for offense to be the gospel itself, not in how he preached it, but knowing that the gospel he preached, Christ crucified, would be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, as he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. You know, I think about some within Christianity, you know, Sometimes we, we care about, you know, hopefully we do. We don't want to live a life that's an offense toward God. We're just living in hypocrisy. We're living in sin. We're doing things that are in rebellion to him, things that would offend God. But then we might look at other people and go, I don't really, but offending other people, I don't, that's not as important to me. I don't, I don't want to offend God, but if I'm offending other people, hey, that's on them. Paul's going, look, I wanna, I'm striving. I'm laboring. I'm doing everything in my power to live a life where my conscience is in a place where I'm not offending God or people. And, and I just, I, I love Paul's example because in these moments, you want to be offensive back. When somebody is doing these sorts of things, if someone's treating you this sort of way as Paul's being treated, you want to kind of, you want to stick it back to them. You've hurt me, and in some way I kind of want to hurt you back at a similar level, maybe even more. Oh, let me take it up a notch. Oh, you said that to me? That's how your mama jokes always used to go when I was a kid, or, or like whatever, whatever the joke was. I try to think of like a better your mama, like a positive, like your mama's so cool, everybody likes to hang out with her. Your mama's such a good cook, everybody wants to eat at your home. Instead of it being like a negative thing, like your mama wears camp combat boots or whatever you would say. Don't act like you didn't say that when you are a kid. Anyways. <laughs> but that our conscience would be without offense. That in the deepest part of who we are, before the Lord that there could be an innocence about how we live, a genuineness, an honoring of the Lord in how we conduct ourselves, not only in our relationship with God, but with other people. Because isn't that going to make a huge impact in how our witness ends up kind of playing out with those around us? When we just kind of live flippantly, we don't really care, we're not careful with our words, we're not careful with our lives, 
when we're living in hypocrisy and we start to talk to people about how Jesus can change them, what does that mean for them? They're going, I know Jesus hasn't changed you. I, you're saying these things, but I know that there's some other things in your life that don't match up with this forgiveness and this righteousness that you're talking about that the Lord has given to you. Or maybe in how we just talk to other people, that the way that we talk, the, the things that we say, the tone that we use, that other people just lose respect. They don't want to hear what we have to say. I love that even later on in what we're going to see, it says that it, the way that it's written in the Greek is that Paul had a dialogue with Felix. He just conversed with him. He just had a conversation with him. And I think we've lost some of that. We've lost the ability to just talk to people, talk things out, to be respectful in disagreements, to honor somebody even when they're living in a way that's contrary to biblical values because they're image bearers of God just like we are. And I think as we seek to strive, I pray that for us, that we'd be a people who strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, we can live in a way we're actually offending God by how we conduct ourselves with people because we're maybe making excuses for sin. And so you can err on the other side as well. But to see that God has strength, He has power for us in these things, as we navigate this life, as we, as we deal with the obstacles and the things that we face, that just as Paul did, guys, we can have this patient endurance with joy. And we're going to continue to see this more and, and finish out our account next week when I'm going to have the worship team come back up. I'm going to ask us this morning, though, What are you going to ask, Jared? What are we facing? What are you facing? What am I facing? Are, are we in need of patience? Are we in need of endurance? Are we in need of joy? Maybe we feel like, you know, we're enduring. We're getting by. We're making it through. But there's, there's not that deep inner joy in our lives Maybe all we feel like is just impatient. We're just frustrated. We're just longing for things to be different. Are we in need of the Lord showing up in our circumstances? Are we in need of him giving us his power and his might today? Paul's example of patient endurance shows us that God can do the same things with us too. Paul prayed what he prayed in Colossians 1.11 because God desires to do that in us. But, you know, maybe for someone even this morning, on the other hand, maybe you, you need to be confronted with the reality that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And the only way to be in that just, in that righteous category who gets to be in heaven with Jesus for all eternity and not end up eternally separated from God in hell. It is for you to repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That if you 
you'll do that, Jesus will cleanse you of your unrighteousness and he'll give you his righteousness and save you and forgive you. Jesus went to the cross in order to provide that for you and me. He doesn't want us to be in the resurrection of the unjust side of the equation where one day we stand before him but we bow our knee with shame. We bow our knee with regret, wishing we had made Jesus Lord here. But, but running out of time, never getting that opportunity, never making that decision, never surrendering our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look, there is more to this life after this life is over. We have that hope as believers. There's going to be a resurrection. This morning, you can have a hope. Not like, I hope I'm going to be in heaven. I hope the Lord's going to accept me. I hope I've, you know, I hope he's forgiven me. But you can have that confident expectation. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you will believe in your heart that God raised her from the dead, you will, confidence, you will, it's a promise, you will be saved. And so this morning, if that is anybody here among us, you're going, look, like, I, I want to be, I, I want to be part of that resurrection of the just. I want my sins forgiven. I want to know that my debt's been paid. I want to know that the righteousness of Jesus has been put in my account, not because I've just been a good person, because that's not going to do it. That's not going to cut it. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And so this morning, if that's you and you want to make that decision, I just encourage you, just stand where you're at. And I know there's already a couple people standing. I know where you're, go- where you're at. But if that's anybody else, and you're going, look this morning, I want to have that confidence. I want that hope. That's me. Would you just stand where you're at? You know, maybe this morning you're going, look like I'm in need of patient endurance. I'm in need of that deep inner work of God's joy in my life. I need the power of God. I need him to to give me power to patiently endure with joy. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you too. Would you stand, any of you? Yeah. Anybody else you're going, look, that's me. I I want prayer this morning. I, I want God to do that with me this morning. Awesome. Great. I want to pray for you guys. Lord, I just, I pray for these that have stood and, and Lord, for any who maybe even in the online side of things or maybe someone listening to this message later on, Lord, maybe that's them, that they need their sins forgiven. They need to be saved to have their sins washed away, to be given the righteousness of Jesus. I pray, Lord, even now that you'd be working in their hearts, Lord, that they would confess their sins to you, Lord, that they would confess that you're Lord, that they would invite you to be the Lord of their lives, that they surrender to you. Believe that you, God, raised Jesus from the dead. Would you save them? Would you seal them with your spirit? But Lord, for these that have stood, Lord, who are just, they want your power, Lord, 
at work in their lives to patiently endure with joy. God, meet them. Meet them in their circumstances. Lord, you know what's going on in their lives. Lord, you know the ways that they're needing you to meet them and to, to uphold them and to, to keep them going. And God, not just going, but Lord, to have that joy of the Lord being their strength, Lord, in the midst of it. Lord, would you do that? God, pour out upon them. Strengthen them even now. God, we commit them to you today. Lord, would you bless them? Would you make your face to shine upon them? Give them your peace. Lord, as we respond to these songs, or respond to your word, Lord, in songs of praise, God, I pray that you would continue to be glorified in our midst, Lord, be glorified in our lives. Lord, as we take the communion elements, as we remember Jesus, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, Lord, will we commune with you, Lord, have that closeness of fellowship with you this morning. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.